absolutely thrilled today that two of my dearest friends in the world and two of the people I respect the most in the world of capital markets are here to talk to us. And among the reasons that I'm thrilled to get to talk to them is not that I don't get to talk to them, although it does feel sometimes that I don't get to talk to them often enough, but that my students will get to hear them talk. And I have learned so much over the years from Lachlan and Jeff in a variety of contexts that I can't really express my gratitude. So Lachlan, Jeff, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, but I must say Lachlan with an introduction like that, uh, I almost can't wait to hear what we're gonna say. Well, I, I, restrict, <laughs> I restricted myself to a simple thank you. I, I can't, couldn't think of anything else to say. <laughs> there will be plenty for us to say. So broadly speaking, I'm hoping that we can talk today about the production of contracts, but not so much what you think about when you draft contracts, because both of you have probably drafted thousands of contracts over the amazing careers that you've had. But I'm hoping we can think about and talk about the contract production process. And here's where I'm coming from. So when I teach basic contract law, and that's going to begin for me in just a couple of days, I generally give students the impression that every contract is just what the parties want in their deal. It sets out what, who is paying for and what the other party is going to deliver in exchange for the payment. And then maybe it sets out some of the contingencies, but contracts are what people want their deal to be. Now, over the years, and as a result of many conversations I've had with the two of you, uh, with Lachlan in the context of bond contracts and with Jeff in the context of derivative contracts, I have learned that the world of contract production is really quite different when you look at it up close. And recently, I've been thinking about the reasons why sometimes, at least in certain subsets of the capital markets world, contracts produced by the English firms look so very different from their US counterparts, at least when you look closely. And, I, and for a long time, I thought they were basically the same. So I'm hoping we can start with the two of you taking turns to tell me whether or not this is even a question worth asking. And then after that, I'll ask you questions uh, more specifically tailored to the details of this issue. Lachlan, shall we begin with you? Uh, you can try. Um, 
Yeah, I, I should start by saying I haven't made a comparative study of US law contracts versus English law uh, contracts in, in my area. I mean, it's mainly corporate bonds that I've dealt with throughout my career. Um, I've occasionally come across a US underwriting agreement, for example, and I'm not sure I wholly recognize uh, that there is a huge difference. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm sort of contradicting what you just said me to. Uh, it, 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 it seems to me that both uh, English law and the various uh, American legal systems we come across, uh, mostly New York law, uh, they're both uh, based on common law. Uh, and uh, common law, as we know, gives you pretty much freedom of contract. What you write is usually pretty much what you get. And if you don't write it, you don't get it. And therefore, uh, I would have thought that there's a, every reason why English law contracts and New York law contracts on the same subject should, should be pretty similar. Certainly, uh, back in the early days of the Eurobond market, and I have to say I only came about 12 years after the beginning of the uh, Eurobond market, uh, we were very much uh, in the mode of trying to work out what the different contracts should say. Um, although we, we didn't have a clean slate, uh, you know, it wasn't a blank sheet of paper we were looking at. Uh, we already had, in the UK, for example, there was a debenture stock market, which was basically secured negotiable instruments. Uh, and we uh, had that as a starting point to look at. But we did also look at uh, some of the New York um, uh, documentation. There was a thing called, um, I think it was called the Model Debenture, uh, which I believe was created as a collaborative effort between New York law firms uh, to document the sort of things that you put in a typical US domestic bond. So we looked at those two sources of uh, information and uh, we cobbled together, not as probably the, the pejorative way of putting it, but we, we, we drafted a uh, the, the set of documents for a bond issue. Uh, and there was a certain amount of um, talking to the uh, people operating in the market uh, to work out what it was they thought they were doing for their bit of the transaction and uh, making sure that that was reflected in, in the document, uh, you know, the mechanics of who pays what to whom when uh, is very important. You need to get it in the right order and the right amounts. Uh, so that um, took place uh, in a fairly leisurely fashion in those days. Uh, we would, and you've got to remember this was in the days before uh, word processing and uh, we had, I think, ele electric typewriters, but that was it. And drafting was done, not with a quill pen, but with some kind of ballpoint, I guess, but on, on, on a piece of uh, lined paper. Uh, and then of course, uh, but we had the time to do it, you know, bond issues took uh, weeks to, to draft and get signed and, and closed. Um, but then of course, uh, we encountered the volume problem. Uh, the volume of the market picked up quite rapidly, particularly with the advent of the uh, Japanese to the bond market in the 70s and 80s. And um, 
in order to cope with the volume, I think we were driven towards more standardization and more uh, the, the development of more um, what we call office precedents. But we were still in a world where what you were trying to do was to document what you thought the parties want. Uh, and I would always um, tell my uh, colleagues when I was doing teaching uh, that uh, what you need to be able to do is to uh, explain every uh, phrase or word in a document, why it's there, if required, by the client. And therefore, you need to understand what you're putting in the documentation. Uh, very often, uh, the clients weren't terribly clear about what they wanted in the first place. You know, I, <laughs> if you take a, a thing like a, a negative pledge, uh, me too, I'm not sure how knowledgeable people are about these types of contract, but a negative pledge broadly is a, a, uh, an undertaking by the issuer of the bond uh, that it won't create any other bonds of a similar type uh, which are secured without security to the bond uh, being issued. And uh, if you talk to uh, the bank involved in the underwriting of the issue, if you talk to the issuer itself, if you talk to the people who end up buying the bonds, uh, usually in the eurobond market, institutional investors, you will find that um, they don't really know what a negative pledge ought to say or, wh or why they want it. They just know they do. Um, I, I can, with um, retro engineering, I can uh, find reasons for having a negative pledge, but uh, very often the clients don't know why they want it, but it's market practice and therefore you put it in. So I, I'm, I'm not sure I've answered your question in its entirety, apart from deny, denying one of your premises, me too, but I'll stop <laughs> there and let Jeff have, have a go. No, I, I love it. You set it up so beautifully because you gave us the articulation that I always start with, that that, that is what Lachlan would provide um, his clients. And I, I love this uh, notion that, you know, the lawyer should know what every provision means. Um, I suspect you were probably the only one at your venerable firm who knew what every provision meant, uh, in part because uh, I remember being told when I was uh, trying to dig up the meaning of the Paripasu clause, I remember being told, uh, you know, you need to go and talk to Lachlan Byrne. Um, he's the only one who will know. So th this brings back happy memories. But um, Jeff, you have worked both at an English firm and a US firm, the very best of these firms, and you have seen cross-border transactions across the decades. Do you think that uh, the English contracts are basically the same as the US contracts? Well- And then we'll get into the data. Yes, me too. I mean, I, I actually struggle with the premise that whether a law firm is English or American, can give insight into the approach it takes to contract drafting and formation. And there are at least two reasons for that. First, it's increasingly difficult to characterize law firms who set the bar, certainly for standard contract drafting, as either English or American. They are increasingly international and a combination of lawyers from not just the two jurisdictions, but others as well. 
And second, there are other influences at play. Uh, individual mentors, uh, the cross-fertilization that comes from working groups. Uh, and Lachlan hinted at this, the expectation of clients who, again, may be drawn from a multi-jurisdictional uh, environment. And, and these may be as great or greater an influence. Um, now, I should probably admit straight off, as you would be aware, that I may be unduly influenced in my thinking here by the experience that I've had as a drafter of documentation for the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, again, a very international organization, um, and which led to uh, a literally a check the box, Lachlan would say tick the box, but check the box contract, English law or New York law, everything else in the contract, except for the jurisdiction clauses and the governing law clause stayed pretty much the same. And that's a contract that was achieved with the support of lawyers from, again, both jurisdictions, but many others as well, contributing and a widespread acceptability in other jurisdictions as well. So let me now get to some of the data that we've been collecting on this question and see how you react to it before getting into some of what I see as rather significant differences across the Atlantic, despite the internationalization of the firms. But one thing that you see right off the bat is that if you take the same provisions, take Lachlan's negative pledge clause or you know, the Paripasu clause that I have spent way too many years looking at, or the governing law clause, which every contract in our world contains, the US clauses systematically are longer than the, their English cousins. And when I say longer, they're usually double the size. Now we're talking 10 words versus 20 words, but on average, there is a systematic difference and they're trying to do the same thing. Now, when I've asked uh, our mutual friend, Lee Bukite about this, his first answer is, well, you know, Americans, we just don't know the English language as well. We're just more verbose. But that's too simple of an answer. Lachlan? Yeah, I mean, there are stylistic differences. I, I, I will admit that. Um, and I think that if, if you went back um, 40 years, let's say, uh, you would have found perhaps uh, uh, English drafting much closer to American drafting. But there, there has been a, I think probably in the in 1980s, that there was a drive um, amongst the... English legal profession, really, to uh, to produce drafts which were in what we call plain English, so shorter sentences, shorter uh, words, um, clearer, uh, less uh, uh, intricate syntax. And um, it, it was quite amusing when we first did that to a, uh, our syndicated loan agreement precedent. Uh, put it into plain English, and we tested it out on a few clients. And the uh, the reaction that came back was, "It's all all good, but is it legal?" 
uh, which I think was quite an interesting reaction because I think there is, a <laughs> there is a perception amongst uh, clients that unless you, it's rather like that uh, Marx uh, Brothers movie, you know, the party of the first party, the party of the second party, the party of the, all that stuff. Um, and uh, I think that without that sort of magic, people thought it didn't work, but of course it does. And, and I think that we, we did um, move away from the, the complex towards the simpler syntax and language uh, deliberately. And that might, might uh, answer part of your question, me too. I think it, it uh, you know, superfluous words came out, you know, in the event that became if, you know, it, it's, it's that sort of thing. Jeff, can I turn that to you? Dave, you noticed the size of the American contracts, even in the context where you can differentiate whether it came out of the London office of one of the fancy firms or the New York office. So they're not producing the same kinds of contracts. They may all come out of Alan Novery, but they look different. Different if it comes out of the New York office from the London office. Well, that's interesting. Yes. Because we have US qualified lawyers uh, in both. Uh, and in fact, um, when I was uh, at that firm, uh, we had more US qualified lawyers in London than in New York. Uh, and, and that's that's the interesting thing here. It's it's first of all, it's, it's difficult to take a snapshot and draw conclusions from it when, in fact, what we're all watching is something of a motion picture. I mean, the practice of law has evolved tremendously uh, in our lifetime uh, lifetimes, and and uh, there's no reason to think that you know we're at the end of that film rather than closer to the beginning. I mean, during my first decade at practice at Allen Overy, which I joined as um, its first non-English law qualified partner, well, a decade later, there were already probably more partners of the firm who were non-English law qualified than who were English law qualified and more outside the UK than in it. And again, not all of the lawyers of any particular qualification clustered in their home jurisdiction, any number of them uh, moving about the, the, any number of the uh, firm's offices uh, around the world. Um, and that followed from, among other things, a couple of mergers. First, we had one with a, an Italian law firm and then one with a large Benelux firm, and there were a few since then. Um, and I should quickly add, it's been uh, 10 years, uh, unlike Lachlan, it's been 10 years since my retirement from, from big law. Uh, and so, again, a lot may have happened uh, in the 10 years since I, I left the firm, uh, because, as I said, a, an awful lot did in the first 10 years that, 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 that I was there. I mean, particularly with the influx of experienced lawyers laterally, that has an effect on the way law or the variety of ways law gets practiced at the firm. Lawyers don't immediately abandon their old habits or their old precedents in favor of new ones. Uh, the menu of choices they may have, the resources they can draw on, that invariably expands. Uh, and it's true that, you know, you get uh, at entry level, at least, uh, a more harmonized, uh, but again, a more international uh, training that um, uh, becomes available to the, uh, the young lawyers joining the firm at that stage in their careers. Um, but um, as I said, it's, it's, it's the mix is, is, is clearly there. Uh, and Although I often see batches of contracts that speak with a more jurisdictional accent, 
be it English or American uh, or another, again, for nearly 35 years, the contractual form that has had the greatest influence in my area of practice, and notwithstanding the fact that it's been reiterated over decades, uh, and I'm speaking about that is the master agreement, is, is, is one where um, the language is, is, is a, a universal language, an international language, uh, and uh, being, it's used uh, by lawyers uh, where, wherever they may be with the uh, same contract, same format, different jurisdictions, um, and uh, yet a shared view about what the contract should say should, uh, has emerged. Now, I just would add one other thing, and it goes back to um, uh, Lachlan's uh, commentary on, on plain English uh, drafting. Uh, and by the way, I had a, a, a very a mentor who was very instrumental in my um, thinking about approaches to contractual drafting, who was a plain English uh, addict. And that was when I was learning my law on Wall Street in, in, in the States before moving uh, to London. Um, but uh, interestingly, when, for example, we just went, when, when we had the, uh, the, the global financial crisis and any number of disputes arose under that contract that I know best, the is the master, and people hung on every comma as well as every word in it, um, rarely did people then worry about the contract being too wordy. If anything, they would, they would have been delighted if it had said a lot more. It was less general and more detailed about what should happen next in the facts that unfolded at, at that point in time. So it's, it's really hard, I find, to generalize either about um, uh, the, the, uh, a jurisdictional label on these widely used international standard contracts or to source them in one jurisdiction as opposed to others when increasingly the process that produces them is a very collaborative and international one. So we'll definitely have to talk more about the ISDA contracts that, that do seem quite different and quite immune in some ways to these uh, jurisdictional or, or cultural or structural features. But after our break, I'm hoping to press you both a little further uh, in terms of some of the structural and perhaps cultural differences across the Atlantic. All right, and now we'll take a short break. So Lachlan and Jeff have both resisted my attempts to push them in the direction of acknowledging differences across the Atlantic. But in the second half, I'm going to push a little more, although I should acknowledge also that in the past, I have found that whenever I disagreed with them, I have been proven to be wrong. Still, I don't learn, but I'm hoping we'll also talk about some of the other jurisdictional differences that can perhaps result in differences in contract drafting, such as between civil law jurisdictions and the common law jurisdiction. But to start out, I'm gonna ask a question about a feature of the big English law firms that I have noticed, 
and maybe it's not correct. And one that I have not seen in the big US firms. And that feature is that the English firms seem to have their own research departments, what I would almost call an R&D division, where you have highly skilled lawyers who are watching what's happening in the statutory environment, in the case law, and they're writing these very erudite uh, memoranda to the lawyers in the firm saying, you know, maybe you should consider revising your contracts uh, because there have been these developments. And my simplified understanding is in the US context, unless a client is paying for you to do that, nobody's going to do that because the, the way the US firms work, at least this is my memory, is you had to bill every second. And if there was not some account you could bill it for to, it just didn't happen. Jeff, Lachlan, please feel free to disagree with me again. I'm going to agree in part and disagree in part. Um, I do think those R&D departments are noteworthy, me too. Uh, they've, they also have evolved they, from a more paralegal law library-like function to a more proactive thought leadership function often, by the way, driven by lawyers in those departments who function as and have the status of partners in the firm's scheme of things. And there are clearly benefits of scale that support and help justify this approach. And, and they are clearly seen by those making the investment as giving competitive advantage. But you know, even in terms of response time, uh, responding to legal or market developments, for example, there are other feeds, if that's the right term, that can be valuable. There's involvement in industry or professional body working groups, for example. Uh, in England, we have the Financial Markets Law Committee, the FMLC, which aims to anticipate and prescribe for legal risk. Uh, participating lawyers may draw on their R&D departments when contributing to those groups. Uh, and indeed, persons from those groups may be at the table to take part uh, or to take back working group products uh, from those groups to the wider firm. However, what gets buy-in as a standard form or approach may derive as much from the cross-fertilization of the mix of participating law firms and actually participating individual lawyers at the table as from the more silo-like R&D department itself. Um, now, as you note, it seems U.S. firms have been slower to go down this route in any institutional organizational sense, but US lawyers have well-established practices of collaboration and of responding to uh, changing market practices through, for example, bar association committee work. Um, the approach to legal opinion giving practice, especially third party legal opinions, which I found to be more historically developed in US legal practice may be one example of that. But let me pause there and see what Lachlan's reaction is. Actually, Lachlan, before you uh, go down the path of answering, uh, I, I want to mention the Pari Pasu experience because I think you were involved with the FMLC committee that did the report on Pari Pasu. Uh, certainly, you influ influenced it uh, because you were one of the major figures in that world. And 
if my memory is correct, this was a problem that arose in the context of a New York law contract. And the English firms and lawyers were less worried about it occurring in an English court because they thought that an English judge would probably understand that the interpretation that had been given in Belgium was so inconsistent with market practice that it should not stand. Yet, when it came for the primary research report to be produced, it was produced by the FMLC, not by anybody in New York. The New York lawyers found it very difficult to coordinate to produce a report of that uh, stature. So that's just my memory since Jeff brought up the FMLC. And uh, I'm going to give you another opportunity, Lachlan, to tell me there wasn't really a difference. Uh, well, I, I, yes, I think that there is a difference. I mean, I think the New York Bar can uh, act collaboratively. I think that there are examples of that. You know, there's a, a street agreement in New York for um, uh, what, what I would call the agreement among managers, uh, agreement among underwriters, I think they call it, uh, which is a collaborative effort between the New York law firms. Uh, but I don't think that there are bodies. Um, I think FISMA has got some uh, some traction uh, with U.S. law firms uh, acting collaboratively uh, in New York. Uh, so I think that it, it, it's not right to say there isn't anything in New York, but it's probably right to say it's not as uh, developed or structured as it is in, in the U.K. And I, I think I, I, there are two, two elements to this. Uh, one is development of in-house know-how, and the other is uh, collaboration across uh, market participants through institutions like um, the FMLC. The first of them, I, I, I can uh, give some personal experience on because I, I was sort of involved, no, I, I was involved, not sort of, uh, invo involved in the Linklaters um, attempt to coordinate in uh, 1985, I sat down with um, a couple of colleagues and we wrote uh, office precedents and the drafting notes explaining why every provision was in there and what every word meant. Uh, and uh, we added uh, um, sort of essays, I suppose you'd call them, on uh, what a negative pledge was and why, why it existed and how events had fought. Uh, were designed to protect uh, uh, investors. Uh, and we did that for a number of reasons, um, part of which was uh, risk avoidance. Uh, we didn't want to run the risk, not that we had experience in it, but you know, uh, one of our lawyers drafting a bond and leaving out the repayment clause, that wouldn't have been good. Uh, so if they've got a precedent to follow, that will be an aid memoir that they've got to put in a repayment clause. But more than that, and I think much more than that, it was an attempt to, um, uh, to maintain our professionalism. As I said earlier, you know, I've always believed that uh, a lawyer should be able to explain what's in a contract and should have a duty to do it. Uh, you know, if if a, a client says, why do I need a negative pledge, you should have an answer. Um, and um, so it's to maintain professionalism and also uh, in the face of increasing volumes of uh, transactions where you were paid uh, a fee for the job. You know, it was, you, you usually quoted up front, it was a fixed fee for the job. 
you didn't really want to get bogged down in arguments uh, with uh, lawyers on the other side of the transaction about uh, whether the, the drafting should say reasonable or best efforts or whatever. You just want to get on with the job. So, um, and the job was producing contracts that uh, made sure that the money went from the right place and ended up in, in the right hands at the right time and uh, that everyone was properly protected in accordance with good market practice. Um, that was the job and that's what we tried to get presidents to do. Uh, and it enabled us to do what I would call uh, create productivity in a law firm, which is uh, putting it at its simplest, uh, enable the, um, the most junior and uh, least costly pair of hands or uh, brain to draft contracts uh, without the involvement of the most costly and most senior people. So you could downstream the work uh, and therefore increase your margins uh, in, in a world where uh, it was a fixed price for the job. So it was all those factors that led us to develop uh, precedence and uh, know-how. Um, and then coming on to the FMLC side of it, I mean, I was on the uh, committee that uh, uh, suggested setting up the FMLC and I was actually on the FMLC after that. Um, and it was really about um, creating certainty. And I think this is absolutely fundamental to my mind. You know, we'd had an example uh, with the Hammersmith and Fulham swaps case uh, where uh, people lost money because uh, a local authority had entered into a swap when it didn't have the power to do it. Uh, and uh, what the FMLC was set up to do was to identify areas of legal uncertainty, which could have a damaging effect on the markets uh, and to rectify them either by issuing its own view, which is a sort of quasi judicial view because the chairman is a former senior uh, judge. Or it could be to recommend legislation to correct the defect or whatever. Um, but it's, it's a, re a recognition, if you like, of the importance of underpinning the, the, the capital markets in the broadest sense of the word uh, with certainty. It's, it's fundamentally important to my mind, uh, given the interconnectedness of the markets, you know, every bond will have a swap linked to it, so maybe swapping the interest rate or whatever, or even the currency perhaps, uh, and that but participants in the market, investors, will be rely on, relying on receiving a certain amount of money on a particular day in a certain amount in order to uh, pay their obligation on another transaction. It's a sort of domino effect. And if one, one element in that chain of transactions fails, it could have a damaging effect on the market. And if it's a significant fail uh, in, in high volumes, it could even have a systemic effect. And therefore, I think the, the setting up of the FMLC was a recognition, if you like, that um, the markets need to be underpinned, underpinned by a certain law that will, uh, to the greatest extent possible, ensure that the right money reaches the right place at the right time. And uh, I think it's done a, a pretty good job. It's not the only mechanism for doing that, but uh, it, it, it's a, a, an important mechanism. Well, I, I, I mean, I think the FMLC is, has been quite amazing, uh, as has the ISDA mechanism that Jeff was so <laughs> instrumental in setting up. But 
I know we're gonna run out of time soon, but I, I have at least two or three other topics that I'm hoping we can hit. And one of those is a topic that I'm fascinated by, but don't really understand. But both of you have sort of raised it in some of your responses. And I'd like to dig a little bit deeper. And, and that's the issue of the relationship between transactional lawyers and the judiciary. It seems to me, and again, I'm very much an outsider, that that, that relationship is much closer, at least in London, than it is in New York with the Inns of Court and Queen's Council and a variety of these institutions that exist in the English system. But, you know, maybe it's just that I'm, uh, I'm taken with what seems uh, very quaint. But uh, as Lachlan was talking about the FMLC and the involvement of people from the judiciary, it occurred to me that maybe this impacts some of what we see. Jeff? Yeah, look, uh, this is a very interesting subject, uh, me too, for uh, for me, uh, an expat, uh, you know, having grown up in one environment and looking and absorbing all that's around me in my adopted home. Uh, and I have to admit a bias. I'm a, a great admirer of the English judiciary, particularly when it comes to its role in the development of financial markets law, the area that matters so much to Lachlan and, and to me and to you. Uh, I'm an admirer of the uh, Inns of Court. I had the privilege of being an honorary bencher at one of them, Middle Temple, uh, and the role that, that the Inns play. And I'm also an admirer of, to be honest, of the civility that is a hallmark of the uh, profession here and the constant engagement. Uh, the FMLC is one example of it, but the constant engagement and cross-fertilization of scholarship between bench and bar here in the UK. Now, still, it, it has to be noted that the legal scheme of things here is more compact, it's more homogeneous. All the inns of court, the higher English judicial courts, and the majority of the barrister chambers are within walking distance of each other. And that legal sociology throws up fewer challenges, perhaps, than you would expect to face in a scheme of things where the basis for the selection of judges, the period of their appointment, where they sit, professionally where they come from, varies considerably, as it does when you move from state to state, from state to federal uh, in, in the US and, and, and where distancing is very much more to the fore. Um, but you know, it, it begs the question, um, when we talk about the process of writing contracts and producing contracts, um, I think we, we, we really, it goes back to something Lockman said earlier about meeting the expectations of, of clients. We, we write contracts, uh, you have to distinguish between writing contracts for judges and educating judges about financial market contractual parties for whom the contracts are meant to serve in the first instance and their market understandings uh, between audience on the one hand and context on the other. And, and in my experience, rightly or wrongly, transactional lawyers are still more apt to be writing to be understood by clients than, than, than by judges. But uh, to come back to the FMLC, another important role that it plays is to bridge a gap in the judge's 
experience uh, between their understanding of financial market developments and those developments as they continue to evolve and to provide a measure of training uh, for it. And then we've talked about the FMLC. There's also the financial list, which is um, judges with relevant experience who commit uh, to staying informed about market developments so that they can provide a more specialized service for the cases that emerge from the financial markets. If, if you're not a, a, an English lawyer, you probably need to understand a bit about the division between the bar and the solicitor profession. Uh, the, the, the bar is very different from the sort of transactional end of the market, which is handled by, by solicitors. Uh, barristers don't do transactions. What they do, and they usually, with honorable exceptions, uh, they uh, move from university, having got a degree in law, to pupillage within a barrister's chambers, and they become barristers and in due course, perhaps a, a Queen's counsel, and then maybe even a, a judge. And during all that time, what they're doing is uh, taking instructions on particular aspects of uh, law in relation to transactions. So, uh, for example, uh, quite early on in my career, um, uh, some bright spark uh, raised a question about whether a uh, a bond was negotiable, uh, which was important at that time because they were bearer instruments, um, because of a provision of the Law of Property Act 1925. It's an obscure provision, uh, section 531c. And uh, the, the question had us running around in circles because of course uh, it was very important that bonds should be negotiable. We've been doing transactions for 12 years on the basis that they were, and it'd be a bit, bit embarrassing to find that they they, they didn't work. Um, so we, we went down to council and we put the question to him, having drafted a, what we call a brief, a uh, uh, instructions to the council, setting out a lot of market background as to what uh, the bond was and why it was important it should be negotiable, because the barrister wouldn't understand that because they'd never been in the markets. So you, you need to really brief council on how the transaction works. And then the answer came back, and I think this is illuminating uh, because it shows the, the approach uh, of the judiciary, at least in, in England. Um, the answer was, yes, of course, they're negotiable because uh, we have this sort of common law concept of mercantile law, uh, which uh, broadly says that if a reasonable businessman would treat it as negotiable, then it is. Um, and then there was a question as to how long you needed for reasonable businessmen to treat it as negotiable for it to work. And the answer was no time at all. It's just if you asked a reasonable businessman, is this negotiable? And he said, yes, then it would be. So in other words, mercantile law was something which the judiciary uh, would have used and did, has used uh, many times in order to give uh, a legal answer to a question uh, as to the commercial uh, realities between businessmen. In other words, it leans in favor of what reasonable businessmen would, uh, would think the answer should be. The other thing I'd say is that, as I say, I, I was on the FMLC at one stage, and I remember the chairman, who was a former senior law lord, uh, retired senior law lord, and he turned to me after one meeting, and I think we must have discussed something like the turnover in the foreign exchange market, which was trillions of dollars a day. 
and he, he, he looked shocked and he said at the end of the meeting, he said to me, um, you know, sitting in, in the, uh, uh, in, in all these years, I had absolutely no idea what went on in the financial market. And it's true. And, and that's one of the reasons why the Financial Markets Law Committee has as part of its function to explain uh, to judges uh, how financial contracts work and uh, they have seminars and so on to try and bridge that gap and uh, give them a bit of transaction knowledge, which they lack because they don't do transactions. Lachlan, do you think that the uh, financial list has made a difference in that respect? I mean, this, 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 the change um, that you described predates that. And uh, we certainly have a group of judges now who are pretty savvy about certainly how things work in the markets that I watch most closely, the derivatives markets, uh, and a huge uh, and valuable body of case law that's emerged as a result of that understanding. Yes, I do think it's made a difference, but um, it, 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 it's, it, there's still a, a knowledge gap. You know, those of us who operate in the markets, particularly in the European uh, or international markets, I guess, um, you know, we will have much more detailed knowledge of how many of the uh, relevant laws, you know, the prospectus laws, the uh, market abuse laws, the, um, uh, the regulatory regime under MIFID, uh, how those things work, uh, than the, the, uh, any barrister or judge, because they don't come, <coughs> come across it on a day-to-day -day basis, whereas transaction lawyers do. But you're, you're right, it, it is, it's improved a lot. And of course, so it, it, has, it has to be said that judges are extremely intelligent people and pick up uh, the point very, very quickly. You know, someone like Jonathan Sumption uh, doesn't need you to explain the time of day to him twice. He, he gets it the first time. So Lachlan and Jeff, um, I hate it that we're running out of time and I'm going to uh, go over time a little bit with apologies to Liana, but we've talked a lot about the English system versus the US system, but the 800 pound gorilla in the corner, I would think a listener knowledgeable about comparative legal systems is thinking about is the difference between civil law systems and common law systems. And just to throw it out there, at least in the sovereign debt area that I know the best, if I look at German sovereign debt contracts or French sovereign debt contracts, and there aren't that many of them anymore, but in the days when they did exist, they were maybe one fifth the size of a US contract which was significantly longer than its uh, English counterpart. Now, is that a function of the background legal system? And Jeff, I know that the ISDA contracts operate uh, across civil and common law jurisdictions. So maybe you'll tell me this common law civil law distinction is blown out of proportion by academics or uh, maybe not. Well, I'll tell you that it's an important area for academics to be watching. Uh, but again, they're watching uh, more a motion picture, a, a movie than they are um, looking at somebody's photo album because things are changing. Uh, there is a measure of convergence that uh, 
surprises me, although I do think governing law choices remains a hugely important issue for lawyers to have in mind as they as they guide their clients. But, you know, we talked about the ISDA master agreement, uh, which for over 30 years was literally uh, check the box, New York law or English law. Post-Brexit, the ISDA master is now published with a choice of French or Irish law, French law, civil code. Uh, there's also an Islamic finance-based master. But again, the contract, except for those governing law clauses, remains largely the same as you move from the choice of one governing law to, to another. And that's a, a reflection of a lot of lawyers uh, educating each other and trying to reach uh, a consensus uh, in, in a way that I think has been a phenomenon uh, of legal practice um, in, in, in recent times. And it, it ain't over. Uh, you know, in the last half dozen years, we've seen the emergence of special purpose international finance courts, uh, often courts in countries where the local language is something quite different, but nevertheless prepared to hear cases argued in the English language. We have that in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands, Singapore, Middle East, Kazakhstan, uh, China. This is, a, 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 again, a phenomenon of, of, of recent years when we uh, began our experiment in The Hague and set up the prime finance project that you all know well, uh, none of this was on the horizon. That's why we uh, tried to uh, uh, sort of grease the wheel a bit and, and get people thinking uh, longer term about where things needed to go and not just where they were coming from. So, you know, I think it's, um, these are dynamic times and it'll be interesting to see uh, how, how that all, all, all plays out. But one thing's for certain, there's a lot to play for um, and as we see, if anything, uh, a lot more people interested in, in being at the table. Lachlan? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think there is an element of, um, you know, with civil law, uh, that you, you have a code for contracts and other things. And uh, if the code provides, you don't have to put it in your contract. So that tends to lead to shorter contracts. But I think the significant uh, difference uh, can be, it's not always, but it can be to do with the ability of, under the legal system, of the, um, the courts to intervene and readjust the rights of the parties to the contract. Uh, and as I've said probably too many times so far, it is important, I think, in the financial markets that uh, what is written in the contract as to time of payment and amount of payment and so on uh, is enforced by the courts uh, to avoid systemic risks and so on. And uh, if under a particular jurisdiction, the court has a right to say, well, you know, things have changed. It's not terribly fair that the issuer should have to pay uh, within three days, you know, the grace period of three days, uh, we're gonna give it another four weeks. And you find that uh, you can't accelerate the bond during that time. Uh, and it affects your chain of payments and uh, your, your, your rights in a way that you can't predict. And I think certainty, it seems to me in the financial markets at least, is fundamentally important. So I, I think if I were anyone looking at jurisdiction clauses, I would say uh, there are lots of uh, jurisdiction clauses that give you that certainty, but I'd ask the lawyers, uh, does this mean that I will get what it says on the page or, or will the court have the right to readjust my rights? 
and if the answer is yes, it does, uh, then I would say, give me another choice of law because I think it is important. So Lachlan and Jeff, th this has been absolutely wonderful and I can't think of anything better to start out my semester of teaching with and I'm going to ask my students to listen to this podcast. But before we wrap up, I want to ask you about the institution that the two of you have jointly created. And I've been fortunate to be a part of it and at least witness some of its growth. But I've never really asked you about what motivated you to create it. And I'm talking about the Capital Markets Law Journal, which I see as another important institution. It has grown into an important institution that reflects collaborations among participants in the practicing world and the academic world, uh, talking about difficult capital markets issues. And what, what, what did you have in mind? And why did you decide to invest so much time and effort into the creation of this institution with no compensation whatsoever other than satisfaction? Well, I can for, for, for myself. Um, I took on the job uh, of editor uh, for two linked reasons, I guess. Uh, one is we've talked a lot about the um, uh, relationship between the judiciary and uh, the markets and transaction lawyers in the markets. But there's another element to this, which me too, you yourself are a part of, which is academia. Uh, and there is an academic side to law as well as a judicial or a transaction side. Uh, and I thought a journal that brought the three together uh, would be fundamentally important. And that brings me on to the linked bit, which is that increasingly, uh, particularly in with the development of pan-European uh, legislation to do with financial markets, which is now pretty well developed, but changes all the time. Uh, what one finds is that one is getting involved with yet another element. It's not just academia and judiciary and, and transaction lawyers, but this is legislators. And very often the legislators don't have the necessary understanding of the academic or the, uh, the transactional background to legislate in a way that uh, achieves their own objective, let alone uh, the market's objective and therefore I mean there's this word lobbying which I, I don't like because it usually bespeaks um, people trying to persuade uh, legislators that smoking is good for you but uh, lo lobbying the authorities to try to give them uh, the background necessary for them to make the legislation effective and good and to achieve the policy objectives uh, and one of the things that legislators listen to more than anyone else, one of the people, uh, is uh, academics. They, they just love academia. You know, if you can put a, a piece of statistical analysis in, in a, a, a piece of lobbying, uh, it almost gets swallowed whole, wholesale. So it was a, a sort of part, partial objective to be able to write or to, or to have written 
uh, articles which are uh, to do with the way in which laws should work uh, with uh, academic uh, participation or even authors uh, to help that process along. I, I think that that was a fundamental part of it. Speaking for myself, me too, uh, I don't know if it's been clear from some of the other answers um, that I've given to questions you've put to us, but the lesson that I come away with uh, looking back on, on my career is uh, how, how much people matter uh, in the scheme of things. Uh, firm cultures are important too, yes, but uh, it's the people that you uh, interact with and very often uh, the people you even in one sense are competing with. Uh, and so for me, part of the attraction to um, uh, the project of, that became Capital Markets Law Journal was uh, being able to work closely with Lachlan, who was at a different law firm. But I think all of us would say, uh, as someone once clever said, you're, you're only as good as the company you keep, that we keep some pretty good company on that editorial board. And that's part of the incentive for me is that we uh, keep all that going. And you mentioned the fact that we do it um, without compensation. And, and you know, <laughs> it, it, another lesson that I've learned is it's amazing how many, how much really interesting work you can do if you don't expect to get paid for it. Um, now your students are going to want to know about pro bono and, 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 and uh, uh, the, you know, the value that they should be as individuals placing on uh, pro bono work. I mean, for me, it's a commitment, but it's a privilege as well. And it's, it's, it's always provided an uh, uh, education. Uh, and so I see Capital Markets Law Journal as uh, with all the other pressures that may be out there as, as one opportunity for us to, um, in a pro bono spirited way, uh, keep some very good company and try, as Lachlan says, to make a positive difference in influencing things um, to be done on a more sophisticated basis with the benefit of the education that, that, our, that our authors provide. And me too, I, I just, just to add a footnote to that, I, I've always thought that um, it's a great mistake to think that the business of, of making money uh, is uh, congruent with uh, billing a transaction and getting cash in the till at the end of it. Uh, I think that uh, transactions, if, if you regard transactions as a cart rolling down a road, if um, legislators or others throw rocks into the, in, into the road, the cart won't proceed down the road as uh, comfortably as it should, uh, and you won't get as many transactions done. So uh, removing the rocks or helping to remove the rocks is part of the business of making a profit. Uh, and if you don't pay attention to uh, smoothing uh, the road in front of the cart, uh, you won't make money. I love that. I, I, I love the cart and the, the rocks. I'm going to use that for sure. But thank you both so much. One of the things that has amazed me about the both of you over the years that I've known you is uh, your incredible humility. I mean, you are two of the greatest lawyers of our generation, and you are so humble always. And it, it's been a real privilege to get to talk to you. So I hope you'll be back on the podcast. Uh, but thank you so much for your time.